Section 30 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. Edited by Charles F. Horn. Cleopatra's Conquest of Caesar and Antony. B.C. 51-30. By John P. Mahaffey. Several Egyptian princesses of the line of the Ptolemies bore the name of Cleopatra, but history, romance, and tragedy are all illumined with the story of one, Cleopatra, the daughter of Ptolemy Oletes. Born at Alexandria, B.C. 69, she ruled jointly with her brother Ptolemy from 51 to 48. Being then expelled by her colleague, she entered upon the performance of her part in Roman history when her cause was espoused by Julius Caesar, whom she had captivated by her charms. Her reinstatement by the help of Caesar, as well as all that followed in her relations with Roman rulers, was due primarily to personal considerations, rather than political or military causes. And among women whose lives have vitally influenced the conduct of great historic leaders, and thereby affected the course of events, Cleopatra holds a place at once the most conspicuous and most unique. Like Caesar, Mark Antony, at his first interview with Cleopatra, succumbed to the fascinations of the rare Egyptian, and he never after ceased to be her slave. Not long after Caesar's death, Antony had married Fulvia, whom he deserted for the enchanting queen. From this point to its culmination in overwhelming disaster, and the tragic death of this celebrated pair of lovers, the romantic drama of Cleopatra's conquests becomes even more important in literature than in history. This extraordinary voluptuary, whose beauty and witcheries have interested mankind for almost twenty centuries, has been the subject of some thirty tragedies in various languages, and in Antony and Cleopatra, one of his greatest plays, Shakespeare, closely following the narratives of Plutarch and other classical writers, has invested her with a potency of charm unparalleled among literary creations. She matches Antony in qualities of intellect while she dazzles him with her coquettish arts. A queen, a siren, says Thomas Campbell, a Shakespeare's Cleopatra alone could have entangled Shakespeare's Antony. And Shakespeare alone, as declared by Mrs. Jameson, has dared to exhibit the Egyptian queen with all her greatness and all her littleness, all her paltry arts and dissolute passions, yet awakened our pity for fallen grandeur without once beguiling us into sympathy with guilt. Yet the plain history of this sorceress of the Nile, with her infinite variety, as told by Plutarch and the other ancients, 
and retold with whatever advantage is gained from critical research by the modern masters makes the same impression of moral contrast and inscrutability as that imparted by the greatest poet who has dramatized the character of cleopatra now at last egypt coming into close connection with the world's masters becomes the stage for some of the most striking scenes in ancient history they seem to most readers something new and strange the pageants and passions of the fratricide cleopatra as something unparalleled and yet she was one of a race in which almost every reigning princess for the last two hundred years had been swayed by like storms of passion or had been guilty of like daring violations of common humanity what arsinoe what cleopatra from the first to the last had hesitated to murder a brother or a husband to assume the throne to raise and command armies to discard or adopt a partner of her throne from caprice in policy or policy in caprice but hitherto this desperate gambling with life had been carried on in egypt and syria the play had been with hellenistic pawns egyptian or syrian princes the last cleopatra came to play with roman pieces easier apparently to move than the others but implying higher stakes greater glory in the victory greater disaster in the defeat therefore is it that this last cleopatra probably no more than an average specimen of the beauty talent daring and cruelty of her ancestors has taken an unique place among them in the imagination of the world and holds her own even now and forever as a familiar name throughout the world ptolemy oletes when dying had taken great care not to bequeath his mortgaged kingdom to his roman creditors in his will he had named as his heirs the elder of his two sons and his daughter who was the eldest of the family nobody thought of claiming egypt for a heritage of the roman republic when the whole world was the prize proposed in the civil conflict for though the war of caesar and pompey had not actually broken out the political sky was lowering with blackness and the coming tempest was muttering its thunder through the sultry air so cleopatra now about sixteen or seventeen years of age and her much younger brother about ten assumed the throne as was traditional without any tumult or controversy the opening discords came from within the royal family the tutors and advisers of the young king, among whom Pothinus, a eunuch brought up with him as his playmate, according to the custom of the court, was the ablest and most influential, persuaded him to assume sole direction of affairs and to depose his eldest sister. Cleopatra was not able to maintain herself in Alexandria, but went to Syria as an exile, where she promptly collected an army, 
as was the wont of these Egyptian princesses, who seemed to have resources always under their control, and returned within a few months, says Caesar, by way of Pelusium, to reconquer her lawful share in the throne. This happened in the fourth year of their so-called joint reign, B.C. 48, at the very time that Pompey and Caesar were engaged in their conflict for a far greater kingdom. Caesar expressed his opinion that the quarrel of the sovereigns in Egypt concerned the Roman people and himself as consul, the more so as it was in his previous consulate that the recognition of and alliance with their father had taken place. So he signified his decision that Ptolemy and Cleopatra should dismiss their armies and should discuss their claims before him by argument and not by arms. All our authorities, except Dio Cassius, state that he sent for Cleopatra that she might personally urge her claims, but Dio tells us, with far more detail and I think greater probability, that at first the quarrel with her brother was argued for her by friends, till she, learning the amorous character of Caesar, sent him word that her case was being mismanaged by her advocates, and she desired to plead it herself. She was then in the flower of her age, about twenty, and celebrated for her beauty. Moreover, she had the sweetest of voices and every charm of conversation, so that she was likely to ensnare even the most obdurate and elderly man. These gifts she regarded as her claims upon Caesar. She prayed therefore for an interview, and adorned herself in a garb most becoming, but likely to arouse his pity, and so came secretly by night to visit him. If she indeed arrived secretly, and was carried into the palace by one faithful follower as a bale of carpet, it was from fear of assassination by the party of Pothinus. She knew that as soon as she had reached Caesar's sentries she was safe. As the event proved, she was more than safe, for in the brief interval of peace, and perhaps even of apparent jollity, while the royal dispute was under discussion, she gained an influence over Caesar, which she retained till his death. Caesar adjudicated the throne according to the will of Olates. He even restored Cyprus to Egypt, and proposed to send the younger brother and his sister Arsinoe to govern it but he also insisted on a repayment, in part at least, of the enormous outstanding debt of Oletes to him and his party. A few months after Caesar's departure from Egypt, Cleopatra gave birth to a son whom she alleged, without any immediate contradiction, to be the dictator's. The Alexandrians called him Caesarian, and she never swerved from asserting for him royal privileges. We hear of no other lover, though it is impossible to imagine Cleopatra arriving at the age of twenty without providing herself with this luxury. She was, however, afraid to let Caesar live far from her influence, and some time before his assassination, 
that is to say, some time between B.C. 48 and 44, she came with the young king, her brother, to Rome, where she was received in Caesar's palace beyond the Tiber, causing by her residence there considerable scandal among the stricter Romans. Cicero confesses that he went to see her, but protests that his reasons for doing so were absolutely non-political. Cicero found her haughty. He does not say she was beautiful and fascinating. We do not hear of any political activity on her part, though Cicero evidently suspects it. It is well-nigh impossible that she can have preferred her very doubtful position at Rome to her brilliant life in the East. She was suspected of urging Caesar to move eastward the capital of his new empire, to desert Rome, and choose either Ilium, the imaginary cradle of his race, or Alexandria as his residence. She is likely to have encouraged at all events his expedition against the Parthians, which would bring him to Syria, whence she hoped to gain new territory for her son. The whole situation is eloquently, perhaps too eloquently, described by Merivale, for he weaves in many conjectures of his own, as if they were ascertained facts. The colors of this imitation of a hateful original, the Oriental despot, were heightened by the demeanor of Cleopatra, who followed her lover to Rome at his invitation. She came with the younger Ptolemaeus, who now shared her throne, and her ostensible object was to negotiate a treaty between her kingdom and the commonwealth. While the Egyptian nation was formally admitted to the friendship and alliance of Rome, its sovereign was lodged in Caesar's villa on the other side of the Tiber, and the statue of the most fascinating of women was erected in the temple of the goddess of love and beauty. The connection which subsisted between her and the dictator was unblushingly avowed. Public opinion demanded no concessions to its delicacy. The feelings of the injured Calpurnia had been blunted by repeated outrage, and Cleopatra was encouraged to proclaim openly that her child Caesarion was the son of her Roman admirer. A tribune named Helvius Cinna ventured, it is said, to assert among his friends that he was prepared to propose a law, with the dictator's sanction, to enable him to marry more wives than one for the sake of progeny, and to disregard in his choice the legitimate qualification of Roman descent. The Romans, however, were spared this last insult to their prejudices. The Queen of Egypt felt bitterly the scorn with which she was popularly regarded as the representative of an effeminate and licentious people. It is not improbable that she employed her fatal influence to withdraw her lover from the Roman capital, and urged him to schemes of oriental conquest to bring him more completely within her toils. In the meanwhile, the haughtiness of her demeanor corresponded with the splendid anticipations in which she indulged. 
she held a court in the suburbs of the city at which the adherents of the dictator's policy were not the only attendants even his opponents and concealed enemies were glad to bask in the sunshine of her smiles when caesar was assassinated she was still at rome and had some wild hopes of having her son recognized by the caesareans but failing in this she escaped secretly and sailed to egypt not without causing satisfaction to cautious men like cicero that she was gone the passage in which he seems to allude to a rumor that she was about to have another child another misfortune to the state does not bear that interpretation as he says not a word concerning the young king ptolemy we may assume that the youth was already dead and that he died at rome the common belief was that cleopatra poisoned him as soon as his increasing years made him troublesome to her in her reign four years are assigned to a joint rule with her elder brother four more to that with her younger so that this latter must have died in the same year as caesar cleopatra watching from egypt the great civil war which ensued summoned and commanded by the various leaders to send aid in ships and money threatened with plunder and confiscation by those who were now exhausting asia minor and the islands with monstrous exactions had ample occupation for her talents in steering safely among these constant dangers appian says she pleaded famine and pestilence in her country in declining the demands of cassius for subsidies the latter was on the point of invading egypt at the moment denuded of defending forces and wasted with famine when he was summoned to philippi by brutus it was not till b c forty one after the decisive battle of philippi that the victorious antony turning to subdue the east to the caesarian cause held his joyeux entree into ephesus and then proceeded to drain all asia minor of money for the satisfaction of his greedy legionaries and his own still more greedy vices reaching cilicia he sent an order to the queen of egypt to come before him and explain her conduct during the late war for she was reported to have sent aid to cassius the sequel may be told in plutarch's famous narrative delius who was sent on this message had no sooner seen her face and remarked her adroitness and subtlety in speech than he felt convinced that antony would not so much as think of giving any molestation to a woman like this on the contrary she would be the first in favor with him so he set himself at once to pay his court to the egyptian and gave her his advice to go in the homeric style to cilicia in her best attire and bade her fear nothing from antony the gentlest and kindest of soldiers she had some faith in the words of delius but more in her own attractions which having formally recommended her to caesar 
and the young Cineus Pompey, she did not doubt might yet prove more successful with Antony. Their acquaintance was with her when a girl, young and ignorant of the world, but she was to meet Antony in the time of life when women's beauty is most splendid and their intellects are in full maturity. She made great preparation for her journey, of money, gifts, and ornaments of value, such as so wealthy a kingdom might afford. But she brought with her her surest hopes in her own magic arts and charms. She received several letters, both from Antony and from his friends, to summon her, but she took no account of these orders, and at last, as if in mockery of them, she came sailing up the river Sidnus, in a barge with gilded stern and outspread sails of purple, while oars of silver beat time to the music of flutes and fifes and harps. She herself lay all along under a canopy of cloth of gold, dressed as Venus in a picture, and beautiful young boys, like painted cupids, stood on each side to fan her. Her maids were dressed like sea-nymphs and graces, some steering at the rudder, some working at the ropes. The perfumes diffused themselves from the vessel to the shore, which was covered with multitudes, part following the galley up the river on either bank, part running out of the city to see the sight. The marketplace was quite emptied, and Antony at last was left alone sitting upon the tribunal, while the word went through all the multitude that Venus was come to feast with Bacchus for the common good of Asia. On her arrival, Antony sent to invite her to supper. She thought it fitter he should come to her, so, willing to show his good humor and courtesy, he complied and went. He found the preparations to receive him magnificent beyond expression, but nothing so admirable as the great number of lights, for on a sudden there was let down altogether so great a number of branches with lights in them, so ingeniously disposed, some in squares and some in circles, that the whole thing was a spectacle that has seldom been equaled for beauty. The next day Antony invited her to supper, and was very desirous to outdo her as well in magnificence as contrivance, but he found he was altogether beaten in both, and was so well convinced of it that he was himself the first to jest and mock at his poverty of wit and his rustic awkwardness. She, perceiving that his raillery was broad and gross, and savoured more of the soldier than the courtier, rejoined in the same taste, and fell into it at once, without any sort of reluctance or reserve, for her actual beauty, it is said, was not in itself so remarkable that none could be compared with her, or that no one could see her without being struck by it, but the contact of her presence, if you lived with her, was irresistible. The attraction of her person, joining with the charm of her conversation, and the character that attended all she said or did, was something bewitching. 
It was a pleasure merely to hear the sound of her voice, with which, like an instrument of many strings, she could pass from one language to another, so that there were few of the barbarian nations that she answered by an interpreter. To most of them she spoke herself, as to the Ethiopians, Troglodytes, Hebrews, Arabians, Syrians, Medes, Parthians, and many others whose language she had learned, which was all the more surprising, because most of the kings, her predecessors, scarcely gave themselves the trouble to acquire the Egyptian tongue, and several of them quite abandoned the Macedonian. Antony was so captivated by her that, while Fulvia, his wife, maintained his quarrels in Rome against Caesar by actual force of arms, and the Parthian troops, commanded by Labinus, the king's generals having made him commander-in-chief, were assembled in Mesopotamia, and ready to enter Syria, he could yet suffer himself to be carried away by her to Alexandria, there to keep holiday, like a boy, in play and diversion, squandering and fooling away in enjoyments that most costly, as Antiphon says, of all valuables, time. They had a sort of company, to which they gave a particular name, calling it that of the inimitable livers, the members entertained one another daily in turn, with an extravagance of expenditure beyond measure or belief. Philotas, a physician of Amphissa, who was at that time a student of medicine in Alexandria, used to tell my grandfather Lamprius that, having some acquaintance with one of the royal cooks, he was invited by him being a young man, to come and see the sumptuous preparations for dinner. So he was taken into the kitchen, where he admired the prodigious variety of all things, but particularly seeing eight wild boars roasting whole, says he, Surely you have a great number of guests. The cook laughed at his simplicity, and told him there were not above twelve to dine, but that every dish was to be served up just roasted to a turn, and if anything was but one minute ill-timed, it was spoiled. And, said he, maybe Antony will dine just now, maybe not this hour, maybe he will call for wine, or begin to talk, and will put it off. So that, he continued, it is not one but many dinners must be had in readiness, as it is impossible to guess at his hour. Plato admits four sorts of flattery, but Cleopatra had a thousand. Were Antony serious or disposed to mirth, she had any moment some new delight or charm to meet his wishes. At every turn she was upon him, and let him escape her neither by day nor by night. She played at dice with him, drank with him, hunted with him, and when he exercised in arms she was there to see. At night she would go rambling with him to joke with people at their doors and windows, dressed like a servant woman, for Antony also went in servant's disguise, and from these expeditions he always came home very scurvily answered, and sometimes even beaten severely, though most people guessed who
who it was. However, the Alexandrians in general liked it all well enough, and joined good-humouredly and kindly in his frolic and play, saying they were much obliged to Antony for acting his tragic parts at Rome, and keeping his comedy for them. It would be trifling without end to be particular in relating his follies, but his fishing must not be forgotten. He went out one day to angle with Cleopatra, and being so unfortunate as to catch nothing in the presence of his mistress, he gave secret orders to the fishermen to dive under water and put fishes that had been already taken upon his hooks, and there he drew in so fast that the Egyptian perceived it. But, feigning great admiration, she told everybody how dexterous Antony was, and invited them next day to come and see him again. So when a number of them had come on board the fishing boats, as soon as he had let down his hook, one of her servants was beforehand with his divers, and fixed upon his hook a salted fish from Pontus. Antony, feeling his line taut, drew up the prey, and when, as may be imagined, great laughter ensued, Leave, said Cleopatra the fishing-rod autocrat, to us poor sovereigns of Pharos and Canopus. Your game is cities, kingdoms, and continents. Plutarch does not mention the most tragic and the most characteristic proof of Cleopatra's complete conquest of Antony. Among his other crimes of obedience, he sent by her orders and put to death the princess Arsinoe, who, knowing well her danger, had taken refuge as a suppliant in the temple of Artemis Leucophryne at Miletus. End of section 30